You're listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast focused on Germany, the United States, and the transatlantic relationship. Join us as we discuss economics, politics, security, and more. I'm Jeff Rafke, president of the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to this episode of The Zeitgeist. You may notice a theme uh, recently. We had our most recent conversation with Pascal Lamy, uh, former director general of the World Trade Organization. And today we're going to continue a discussion uh, about uh, the global economy uh, and about uh, trade. Uh, this is part of a series we're doing on transatlantic relations and their ability to address global crises, um, not just the pandemic, uh, COVID-19, which we've been living through. Uh, and I'm really glad we've got uh, two tremendous uh, guests with us. Uh, uh, we have Andreas Freitag, who is a professor of economics at the Friedrich Schiller University uh, in Jena. He's also an honorary professor at the University of Stellenbosch. Uh, Andreas, thanks for being with us. Thank you, Jeff, for inviting me. I'm happy to be with you. And we also have with us Rufus Yerksa, who is a uh, former deputy U.S. trade representative, uh, also a former deputy director general of the World Trade Organization. Um, uh, Rufus, thanks so much for making time. Thank you, Jeff. Great to be here. I'm joined, as always, when we discuss these topics by Peter Rashish, Senior Fellow and Director of the AICGS Geoeconomics Program. Um, and I want to start off, uh, Rufus, by asking you how you would assess the state of the transatlantic trade relationship. You know, we are facing challenges not only from the pandemic, also climate change and, and the evolution of climate policy, uh, the growing role of China, which has uh, many people concerned um, and has gotten the attention of Europe and the United States. We've got troubles in the WTO. Um, if you were taking the barometer, taking the temperature of the relationship, uh, how, how do you see it? Well, I think I think it's certainly a lot better than it was uh, a few years ago. I mean, obviously, during the Trump administration, not only did the TTIP negotiations, the transatlantic trade and investment partnership negotiations that had started under Obama, uh, basically were suspended. But then, of course, there were there were huge ruptures in the relationship because of uh, tariffs that Trump put on on European steel, threats to do the same on autos. Uh, a lot of uh, U.S. backing away from WTO dispute settlement and other things that irritated Europe. Uh, and, you know, since since the change to the Biden administration, well, no new, uh, you know, TTIP negotiations are in sight. They have started this uh, this TTC process with a lot of uh, cooperative talks on on both trade and technology issues and a lot of regulatory issues. I think the Russia invasion, you know, really heightened the sense from both sides that, uh, you know, trade is not just about economics. It's also about um, our shared values, about democracy, about free market capitalism, and about national security and the need to reinforce the the, the strongest uh, alliance in the world between, you know, truly democratic societies in Europe and America. Yeah. Um, uh, Andreas, do you do you share that assessment or do you see more clouds I'm, out there? I am in, in total agreement. Um, I would just add that the Chinese challenge may further in, improve the transatlantic relations in the future. That's uh, yeah, that's I, an... I, 
I very much agree with that. Nothing, nothing focuses a relationship like a common uh, adversary. Okay. Well, I think we'll come back to that, uh, I'm sure, very soon in this conversation. Um, I, I want to uh, pivot uh, to uh, an organization you both know well, and and uh, Rufus, one that you served uh, as a senior official, and that's the World Trade Organization. Uh, the, the, the WTO's rules essentially have been unchanged for nearly 30 years. Um, uh, but since then, we've had an, a remarkable uh, series of changes external to it. Uh, on the one hand, you have the, uh, China joining the WTO. We have technological advancements. And you you referred to the Transatlantic Trade and Technology Council, which is an effort by the United States and the European Union to try to deal with some of those uh, issues. But uh, in a more fundamental way, does the World Trade Organization need to be reshaped and and if so, how might that process um, uh, move forward? I think what I would say is that clearly any organization that sort of hasn't revised its, its rulemaking uh, or hasn't advised its basic code of rules, any legislative body uh, with this sort of is in a global context uh, in more than 30 years, clearly needs some updating, particularly in light of the changes in in trade and economics and technology, the, the emergence of, of um, you know, the digital economy, uh, tremendous changes in bilateral regional mm -hmm. trade relationships. What makes it so difficult for the for the WTO now is is the growing power of China uh, and you know the difficulty of finding common rules in many areas. Take subsidies, for example, <clears throat> between. Uh, market-oriented capitalist countries and the kind of mixed economy model that China represents and add to that the geopolitical tensions that have begun to develop between the West and China. So it's going to be a challenge to, to, to find the kind of common basis for multilateralism. Also, emerging developing countries are more skeptical of, of you know, the major economies like the U.S. and Europe on many trade issues, and that will increase the difficulty. But I think there's clearly a need for reform, a need to move forward. It's just the complexity of the membership of the organization now, which has expanded so rapidly and which now includes not only China, but Russia and many of the former Soviet states as part of the membership. So that increases the complexity of negotiating uh, consensus-based rules. Well, that that consensus based uh, clearly uh, is a uh, is a big hurdle to get over. Uh, Andreas, um, let me add another element to that, but try to get your reaction also on the WTO, and that is climate uh, climate policy. Um, not just after this uh, summer, which has seen dramatic uh, extreme weather events uh, all around the world, uh, but climate policy is increasingly at the forefront. And so, how does that fit then um, uh, with uh, with the multilateral? Uh, trading framework in your view? In principle, I would always argue that um, climate policy should be dealt with or climate the climate change should be dealt with uh, a single climate policy following the Tinberg rule that you need an uh, instrument for every objective and you cannot solve both the climate problem as well as trade problems with the WTO. So the WTO here is under an enormous pressure uh, and um, trade policy is also under pressure when we integrate climate policy into trade relations. 
So the first best solution would, of course, to be to solve the climate uh, problem in special fora, which are designated for climate policies. And then, um, for instance, with a global CO carbon dioxide tax, um, we have an increase in, in the transportation costs, which reflect the externalities, and then trade policy is no longer necessary. Uh, but of course, this is the first best world. So the second best world, I think, would be to form uh, climate clubs within which then um, trade is free because we apply the same rules to the climate. And externally, these climate clubs or this one climate club, ideally consisting of the OECD countries, then can impose climate policies on other countries via trade policy. That would be my preferred second best solution. Uh, Andreas, when you talk about uh, climate clubs, um, it, it, it's, you know, one way of looking at that approach is to um, uh, call them, um, call that kind of approach a plurilateral agreement, you know, a, a essentially a coalition of the willing. And um, in addition to climate, this has also been talked about for example, within the uh, US-EU-Japan trilateral initiative, which wants to come up with new rules for subsidies and state-owned enterprises. And, and we do have some existing plurilateral agreements in the WTO on information technology, government procurement. I mean, be, in addition to climate, are you optimistic that that's a way forward to re-energize the WTO? I'm definitely thinking that it is a good way in principle, because um, um, as, as Rufus already mentioned earlier, uh, with this uh, enormously diverse membership and growing membership, uh, the consensus principle will be probably a hurdle for any, any reform as well as for, for any larger initiative. So I think plurilaterals uh, pave the way out of that. It is obviously not clear whether they are uh, uh, within the legal uh, scope of the WTO, but I'm not a legal scholar. So I believe I have understood that it is possible to uh, to have plurilaterals, but um, governments of India and South Africa, I think, uh, question that heavily. So I, I, I would get give these questions to the lawyer at the, on the table, table here. But in principle, I think that is a good idea because that is the only way to unlock certain potentials. Uh, as long as somebody has veto power, I guess it's almost impossible to, to come to reforms. So in principle, I see them very positive, but I'm not sure whether they are really in the scope of, of, of the WTO. But one argument would be, if we if we do not uh, are not able to use uh, this format within the WTO, we have to expect that uh, plurilaterals will be agreed upon outside the WTO, and I think that would be much worse. Rufus, as a lawyer or from any other perspective, uh, how do you see this issue of plurilaterals? Well, just to go back for a moment to I think Andres made some very good points about you know how uh, rules and disciplines and commitments among countries on carbon reduction and climate change has to occur in in specific for I you know as a lawyer I would I would mention the doctrine of lex specialis that you know clearly you need special agreements with commitments among countries to to tackle uh, uh, climate change and this means commitments on carbon reduction the question is how these countries implement them in their domestic law and the role that the WTO ends up playing is, as the more general forum dealing with all of trade, 
how do commitments on carbon reductions get transferred into things like border adjustment measures and other things? And how do we make sure that those are done in a way that are non-discriminatory, that do not uh, create artificial barriers to trade, while at the same time permitting all of these countries, and by the way, if there are regional agreements that do the same thing, permitting regional organizations to actually have meaningful binding commitments, but that don't disrupt trade in ways that are kind of contrary to the concepts of the WTO, like national treatment and most favored nation. And that's going to be a very difficult challenge, clearly, because you can already see that in what uh, arguments about what Europe is doing with CBAM and what the proposals in the U.S. Congress are on border adjustment measures that might not be truly national treatment in nature that might be applied on imports, but not impose the same kind of carbon uh, taxes on domestic uh, producers of carbon intensive products. Ultimately, do you think there's a need for a reform of WTO rules uh, so that climate uh, policy is taken into consideration in a different way? I think the challenge is to find ways for all of us to commit to carbon reduction are going to force the WTO to create a kind of a, um, a framework that translates all of those commitments into something that is um, done, you know, in the least discri trade discriminatory fashion possible, and that the WTO is going to have to re react to the to the implementation of all these measures around the world. But it's going to be a real challenge given, you know, how hard it is to reach um, basic consensus on these issues in the WTO right now. Uh, but I, I, I see the challenge as unavoidable because these, these carbon-based uh, regimes are coming. They're needed. We need to reduce carbon intensity and move to a, a, a more low-carbon world economy. Mm -hmm. Uh, Rufus, you mentioned earlier um, when you're talking about the transatlantic relationship that things are better in part um, because there were uh, tensions uh, that resulted from President Trump's decision to block the appellate body. Um, President Biden hasn't, um, at least yet, um, unlocked that. Um, it, it seems somehow that the WTO is 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 particularly neuralgic in the U.S. domestic political context the way it isn't, say, in Germany or in the EU. Um, do you agree with that? And if so, you know, and, and if so, why, why do you think that's the case? Yeah, I, I do agree with it. And it's it's troubling. Uh, I think it's largely a, a function of U.S. dissatisfaction with how the WTO rules have applied to China. And China's, uh, uh, you know, state-controlled uh, capabilities and this mixed economy model and things like the Made in China 2025 initiative, which shows lots and lots of, you know, deliberate government policies to either <clears throat> subsidize industries or actually steal technology and the inability of the WTO to deal with that. And that, that's then sort of fueled dissatisfaction in the U.S. with the WTO, given China's huge trade surplus with us and other things. Trump's trade war with China didn't really change all that dynamic very much. Uh, and the Biden administration has been struggling to develop, a, you know, a clear trade policy vis-a-vis -vis China. 
But it, it's made the U.S. very gun shy about the WTO dispute system, fueled in part by the fact that then protectionist lobbies in the U.S. see an opportunity to dismantle some of the rulings or dismantle some of the impact of the WTO dispute system on their favorite industries. And that's you know what the steel industry, for example, has done. They've taken advantage of this political dissatisfaction to, you know, essentially create more protectionist regime in the U.S. that is insulated from WTO because we've immobilized the dispute system. Andreas, you think I'm right that um, concerns about the WTO are stronger in the U.S. and in the EU, or do you also see dissatisfaction growing there? Because after all, um, in the last year or two, the EU has... Uh, I would, uh, you know, taken on some uh, much a bit more muscular approach to to trade policy. Yes, it has. Um, I would, uh, if I may, I would like to make one remark on on subsidies because they, I see some sort of um, um, double speaking, so to speak, because the EU uh, and and in the EU and in the US as well as in Japan, we have a lot of non-tariff barriers and particular subsidies. I mean, with just the German case, Germany pays a, an enormous amount of subsidy even before COVID. And this is uh, not to state-owned enterprise. It is to privately-owned enterprises and state-owned enterprises. So um, we we must be we must be aware that this um, this this uh, dissatisfaction with the situation in China is 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 not mirrored by our clean behavior, so to speak. So um, and from that basis on, I think the EU is it, it can easily take a, a harsher position towards China because they already do a lot to support their industries against uh, international competition. Uh, and we had this discussion here at the Institute about uh, the Germans' plan for industrialization 2030, industrial policy 2030. You may recall that when Minister Altmaier had this idea. So we are not, we are not so so clean as we would like to see us as in Europe. And, and um, so uh, if we want to solve the problems, I think we also have to take a step back from our position in some, some respects. So can I, can I just add one thing to Andreas's thought there? Because you, know, you can clearly see this happening in the US as well as Germany. Uh, look at the new uh, federal subsidies for uh, electric vehicles with, you know, tax credits that are uh, designed to be preferential for domestically manufactured uh, vehicles, um, which obviously will create tensions in in terms of our WTO commitments. But, you know, you're particularly seeing the growth of, of the use of subsidies for environmental purposes, which, you know, everyone views as being important and necessary. Um, but which clearly will make it a little more difficult for us to kind of take a holier than thou attitude towards subsidy disciplines against others, including China and the WTO, because uh, Europe and the US are ourselves going to be wanting to figure out how to promote those new technologies. And in some cases, the only way you can do politically is to also, you know, give the bulk of the benefits to your own domestic industries. Yeah, and, and Andrea, so so maybe going back to what you said, um, 
or maybe to both of you about subsidies. I mean, putting aside hypocrisy, you know, they point that the U.S. and the EU also engage in subsidization and maybe will in engage in more of it. But putting that aside, does that would that make it practically more difficult in the WTO to come up with a new code on subsidies and state aids? Because um, compared to 25 years, 30 years ago, now the U.S. and the EU have more vested interests in protecting their own state aids. I would say that is definitely true. Um, we we are and, and in addition, we are not only subsidizing green technologies; we are still subsidizing uh, fossil fuels to a large extent. Mm -hmm. um, just to give you an example, this is the the special treatment of of business cars in in the German tax law, the, the so-called Dienstwagen Privileg. Uh, the name, as such, is already hinting to the problem. Um, and um, I think that is that is a, a clear problem. We have tried in in the T20 last year to uh, to um, develop a framework where governments think about the damage they do to their own economy with subsidies, because you don't only hurt the neighbor, you hurt yourself. Uh, and by taking this into account, there may be a sort of, of reversal, reverse thinking. That would be the best way. I mean, we hurt ourselves more than we hurt China with our subsidies. Right. Um, let, let me go back to the WTO itself as an institution and and how it how it functions. You know, compared to some other international organizations, um, you know, it's clear the WTO is 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 one where the where the members have a lot to say, and and the and the you know the director general and the secretariat don't have a great amount of autonomy. Uh, do you think? Do either of you think that by increasing the powers of the director general uh, and the secretariat, that that could unleash some some dynamism toward reform in the WTO? I mean, I will take a, a kind of traditionalist view about this, that it, it's it's very hard to vest, you know, real decision-making powers in a director general. Um, I think a director general can be given greater latitude to propose new forms of agreements and to be, you know, extraordinarily activist in, in, kind of provoking the members into a negotiation. But I don't see it as realistic to have um, an official sitting in the WTO, which is already, um, you know, viewed with suspicion in, 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 in certain quarters um, to, to actually impose its will on, on the membership in, in any meaningful way. Uh, I, I think, you know, it's always going to be a role, which is we call good offices. That is, Know, the person that can act with complete neutrality to bring members to the table around around various issues. But let, look, the WTO rules is still a contract among governments. It's not, it's not world law. There's no WTO jail that you can throw countries in if they violate it. It is a contract among sovereign states. And the, the U.S. trade war with China is living proof that if countries decide their vital national interests require them to ignore their WTO dis, uh, commitments to another country, uh, that can still happen. So I, I would tend not to want to, you know, stoke the fires of let's give the WTO greater, you know, autonomy or power over its membership. I don't think that's realistic. 
Andreas, a more sovereign WTO? No, I think that I, I don't see it as, as, as Rufus just said. What I, what I think is that it is very much dependent on the leadership. Um, I have the impression that the new DG, Mrs. Okonjo Viala, is, is more active than her predecessor and is more steering up things like, like, like Rufus has just mentioned. So I think the, it is a bit depending on the leadership. Um, and I, so there's more leeway, I think, than, than we, we, we believed until recently. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe a final question to bring together a couple of threads that we've touched on here. It, it, it seems in one way that what we're talking about from different angles is the need for our uh, you know, global economy and our international trading system to, to deal more directly with concerns that have arisen recently that touch upon national security, um, values questions uh, like human rights, um, but also the, the, the threat of climate change. And, and so, uh, you know, that is all counterbalancing the traditional arguments in favor of economic efficiency and trying to rationalize the international trade system. So, um, it, does does all of this point to a new kind of globalization uh, in your view, or is this uh, more uh, tweaks and edits around the margins? Uh, Andreas, maybe we'll start with you and then come to Rufus. That's a really that's a really difficult question, Jeff, because it is what would be new. I mean, the uh, the way trade is performed won't change much. I think the way it is. Um, uh, benefiting um, um, the economy in the sense that this efficiency increasing is also not changing. So I think what is will be changing is that um, the search for trade partners will be not only driven by efficiency and cost considerations, but also by political considerations. So it will be blurred. And I think that uh, enterprises will respond to say, the incentives given by their governments in that respect. Also, uh, there will be probably less engagement in China, even if it's cost-effective and, and efficient. Uh, so then we, we had seen in the last decade, particularly from the German perspective. So I think, but in principle, trade will remain similar and um, we should also not uh, write off globalization because there's the the need of uh, uh, very many people in the world to integrate themselves better into the global division of labor. Um, so I think we can see, still see um, the phenomenon of globalization, but we will see some, some uh, changes, so more tweaks than a fundamental shift. Rufus? I, I, I think, Jeff, that you, know, you clearly can see from the direction that the Biden administration has taken its, its international engagement on trade and economics, the reality that these factors you spoke of, um, you know, uh, values and the environment and uh, particularly areas like labor standards are becoming extremely important as a framework for any future expansion of globalization. So the U.S. has stepped back from any, you know, kind of traditional free trade agreement type negotiations right now. It's focusing, for example, in this uh, Indo-Pacific economic framework on, on areas like 
creating real uh, commitment to labor standards to get countries to all agree that they're going to implement uh, labor laws based on the ILO um, standards. Um, you look at what we've done with respect to forced labor. Um, you look at the uh, one of the planks of this IPEF is on uh, environment and another plank is on, quote, fair trade, which which is going to look at things like, you know, using your regulatory or social system to um, create, you know, trade advantages. I think those are all going to become a reality, a, a reality in terms of any future negotiations, at least for the United States. And I think also for Europe, because I think many of these values are things that the European communities have been pushing for for a long time and for greater importance of both environmental and and labor uh, components to, to globalization. So and and the fact that we're all looking at climate change as being the greatest existential threat. All that being said, nobody is going to step back from the desire to advance living standards and economic well-being and when the world goes into bouts of recessions, as you know, there's certainly the risk is happening now, there's going to be a lot of pressure to help expand business through through trade. Well, I think that is a good place for... Oh, Andreas, go ahead. You want no, to I, I, I fully agree. I just wanted to say that I think it's also in the interest of the, the of the emerging world and the developing world. So it's it's um, it's not clear what is... It's chicken and egg here. Because of the, the raised um, welfare el elsewhere, there, I think there's also the acknowledgement that um, labor standards, human rights, environmental standards are of importance. So it's a, it's a reinforcing element. So I wouldn't say this is distorting globalization, but it's rather enhancing globalization. But I didn't understand Rufus that way, but just to make the point. And he is right, the Europeans are, I think, even stricter than the, than the US. Uh, I have uh, done a few SIAs for the European Commission of the EPAS and other FTAs and labor standards. Mm -hmm social rights standards, environmental standards, human rights are extremely important. Yeah. Well, I think that's an optimistic note on which to kind of wrap up this uh, this conversation that we have uh, instruments uh, that uh, that can be that can be applied uh, and if necessary uh, updated uh, that that the restoration of the transatlantic economic relationship provides a firmer basis uh, for joint action to to try to address the new challenges and a recognition that that we do have um, more work to do whether it is uh, questions like uh, labor rights or um, things uh, such as uh, the climate uh, challenge and uh, the need to deal with the growing weight uh, and influence of China. So I want to thank uh, both of our guests, uh, uh, Rufus Yerksa uh, and Andreas Freitag, for being with us uh, today. Thanks so much, both of you gentlemen. Thank you. Pleasure. And uh, Peter, uh, thanks for guiding us through this conversation. And uh, to all of our listeners, we look forward to having you with us uh, again soon on the next episode of The Zeitgeist. Thanks for listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast produced by the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Send us your feedback by email to info at AICGS.org or catch us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at AICGS. 
Don't forget to check out AICGS.org for more information from today's episode. Auf Wiederhören.